0: You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Good morning. If you could remain standing with me as we read God's word. Our text this morning is from genesis chapter 33 genesis chapter 33 and if you recall last week pastor dylan had preached on genesis 32 and this in uh, a very real sense is part two of this episode so genesis chapter 33 starting with verse 1 and jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold esau was coming And four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah and her children. And Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them. Bowing himself to the ground seven times. Until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him. And embraced him. And fell on his neck. And kissed him. And they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near. They and their children bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. So please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he, Esau, took it. Verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock That are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. And so Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he, Jacob, said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe, Israel. This is God's word. You may be seated. To pay my way through school, I worked the swing shift at Bank of America as a 10-key operator. A 10-key operator. What is that? I know. Um, If you take a look at a check, you guys remember those, right? A check. Anybody still write a check? Well, at the bottom of the check, there's a series of numbers, and it's kind of a cool computer font. But at the bottom right, it was blank. And so my job as a 10K operator was to type in the amount of the check and to go ahead and it would, the machine would encode it with special ink. So the more checks that I encoded, the more I got paid. So if there was a stoppage in work that would negatively impact my pay you know, I would literally pay for it. But what would stop my work? Well, what happens is in uh, this job as a 10-key operator, I was given a batch of checks. And so the first slip I I would put in was the deposit slip, and that would be the total amount of the checks, dollar amount. And then after that, I would just punch in the number for each check. And at the end of that batch the total dollar amount of the checks needed to equal the total of that deposit slip. Pretty simple, right? But if it didn't, that's when the machine would go beep and it wouldn't let me move forward with work. And the reason why it wouldn't is because the batch wasn't reconciled. And that was a term that they used. You need to have this reconciled. So, what I had to do was spend time to go ahead and figure out which check was uh, incorrectly encoded and figure out what in fact happened because at the end of the day, I needed to have that batch reconciled. Now, a financial institution or any business, um, it's important for things like that to be reconciled. Your money needs to be accounted for. And that kind of reconciliation, as important as it is, It pales in comparison to the reconciliation that's needed when there's conflict between two parties. And in this case, what we're seeing on the global stage is a conflict on a global scale. We have the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the consequences there are multiplied. And it's far-reaching and far more serious. But of course, the conflict that we're probably most familiar with is personal conflict. Think about that. Conflict with a coworker, conflict with a friend, and for many of us, conflict within our family. Now, with that conflict, there's a need for forgiveness and hopefully reconciliation to what? To move forward. We need to move forward and we need reconciliation. Now, often we know that this process, it's a painful process. It's painful because there's, it's not just one-sided. There's plenty of blame to go around between two parties. And more often than not, it is two people. There's, there's an element there where both of them are, in a sense, guilty. Now, there are cases where there is one who is a victim of the other, and we know this. But more often than not, There's blame between the two parties. Now, there's a desire for reconciliation in those instances. And that desire can and should be real, but often it's with mixed motives, if we're honest. In our passage this morning, Jacob is desiring from his brother, his twin brother, whom he cheated out of blessing that would determine from every human point of view Esau's success and his destiny. And from Esau, Jacob is desiring forgiveness. He's desiring reconciliation, a cessation to impending hostilities, perceived or real. And at this point in the story, we know that the hostility is very real. It's 400 men worth of real. But as you recall, and what we learned last week, before the encounter with his estranged brother Esau, Something happened to Jacob the night before. Jacob, as we learned, wrestled with God. Jacob had his hip dislocated. And more than that, more than that Jacob had experienced the humbling grace of God. The humbling grace of God. <clears throat> before Jacob's transformation where he wrestled with God, if you guys remember, he prayed to God. Honestly, he opened his heart out to God. He laid out his fear, his fear of Esau, his fear of losing all that he had, his life, his family, his children. You remember his prayer in chapter 32, verse 11. He said, please, Lord, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Now, as the morning comes, we see the first movement in this passage. We see that that prayer was answered. It was a prayer answered. So let's begin our story here. Actually, if we move up one chapter, chapter 32, verse 31. So turn with me to chapter 32 of Genesis, verse 31. After wrestling with God, the sun rose upon Jacob as he passed Penuel. Limping because of his hip. Jump down to chapter 33, verse 1. <clears throat> and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. You remember the day before, he grouped droves of his livestock as a way to appease Jacob, over 500 of them. And interestingly, as he sent him, he did send his wives. His wives, he had multiple wives and children ahead of him, as he went back across the Jabbok River to be alone. You recall the story. But what we read next shows something had changed from the night before. So he continue on with verse one. Jacob divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children up front. Then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph, last of all. Now notice something here. Moses, he's the writer of Genesis. He's making clear here who Jacob's favorite is by calling him out by name. He's the only child who's called out by name. And of course, Jacob is obvious in showing his favoritism by placing him in the safest position, last of all. So the focus here on Joseph, it signals for him becoming a larger part of the Genesis story and the drama that's going to unfold. So stay tuned for that. But here's where I want us to notice. I want us to notice how Jacob now approaches the one that he feared. Look at the way he approaches Esau. Not with his family ahead of him, but he rightly goes before him. Verse 3, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So picture this, guys. Jacob's probably at least around 60 years old. He's more like 70 years old. But in the patriarchal age, and think about no processed food, healthy, active lifestyle, he's in pretty good shape. And think about it. He survived a night wrestling with God, but he's spent. <clears throat> and think about Jacob, too, as a, a man of means. He's, he's, a, he's got some stature to him with the accumulation of wealth. So, here in Jacob, in the presence of his children and his wives, he's displaying humility, he's displaying honor for Esau, and he's displaying a vulnerability. To whatever decision his brother Esau would make. But here's the thing. He does so knowing that the God he prayed to was good. And the God he prayed to keeps his promises. So look at verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. They wept. The expected rage and revenge was replaced by weeping. The feared attack was replaced by a long and emotional embrace. Think about it. 20 years of scenarios being played over and over in Jacob's mind and even in Esau's mind. As they're tending to their livestock. Think about Jacob, how Laban had, had swindled him out of money and time, none of which could be replaced. And Jacob was thinking, that's exactly what I did to my brother. All these scenarios were washed away in that sweet, sweet reunion. So we see here an honest fear laid out by Jacob. And a desperate request for deliverance. And a prayer answered. A prayer answered by the one who sees. And the one who knows. And the one who does good. Because he is good. Now. The scene continues. While the two brothers were hugging it out. There was an obvious sense of safety. Where the children and the mothers. As they came closer. They sensed safety. And so they too. Approached him. So Esau looked up and he said. Now who do we have here? So some commentators. They remarked this. They said that Jacob. In deference to his brother. He was still very sensitive to what he had done. He didn't answer Jacob. Using the word Barak. Which in the Hebrew means blessing. Because he feared potentially. That that, what he robbed Jacob of. Of his blessing. Would trigger that memory. But he did ascribe to God the credit and the honor and the source of who had given him his children. In verse five, he says, and when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And so like their father, they too approached Esau with respect, bowing down one by one as they approached him. Now in verse eight, we're going to jump down. Esau asks a question to his brother, and it leads to a pretty interesting and a revealing exchange. Esau asks this: He goes, "What is the meaning of all this droves of livestock that I ran into the, into on the way to meet you?" And it's not like he didn't hear or didn't believe Jacob's ser- uh, servants as they passed by each one of the droves. If you recall, they were meant to uh, be as a gift, as a way to appease his brother. But Esau wanted to hear it from his own brother's mouth. And Jacob, he insists on giving what he has as a form of restitution, a, a way to pay back. A way to pay back or to even consider this, bless Esau with what he has taken away from Esau, But I think even more, those are actions of a man who wants to act in a way that resembles the grace that transformed him. Think about this. Esau has seen, excuse me, Jacob has seen the face of God and survived. And now he's experiencing the deliverance from Esau, also provided by God. Now, there's two phrases that I wanted to see at the the heart of this exchange that comes up. And these two phrases are showing the grace of God at work. These two phrases that we're going to see that I want to point out are showing the grace of God at work. Jacob, again, out of deference and respect to his brother, he keeps calling Esau my Lord. Notice that. He calls him my Lord. Yet Esau, as if his running and his embracing and his weeping with Jacob wasn't enough, Esau calls Jacob, and here's the first phrase I want us to notice, Esau Esau calls him my brother. My brother. My brother. Verse eight, Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Referring to the droves beforehand. And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Verse nine, but Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And here, notice what comes next. It's the second phrase I want us to take note of. And you have accepted me. And you have accepted me. I have cheated you. And you have accepted me. Jacob is saying, all is well. All is well. I hurt you and yet you forgave me. You forgave me. You have accepted me. Reconciliation cannot happen until there is forgiveness. Now at the end of this exchange, we're looking, we're going to see a window or a picture of what was common in the ancient culture where this initial refusal was met by insistence. So Jacob here, he cleverly uses Esau's excuse for having having enough by elevating his abundance. Again, by attributing it to the hand of God. Look at verse 11. Jacob says, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And so Jacob urges him and he, Esau, took it. He received it. So here we have a restored relationship. We have reconciliation. And we have it all because of the grace of God at work in a prayer answered. So we're going to move on now to the second conversation between Esau and Jacob. Same scene, same setting. But here's where I want us to see something here. One uh, commentator says, in addition to forgiveness... Esau now offers leadership and companionship. Look at verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. So let us journey is offering companionship and I will go ahead of you is leadership. Now, it's at this point where I do want to draw out from what the text says that the things that Jacob says from here on out He does it in a way that helps us understand the point of the passage, especially in light of redemptive history. We have to keep in mind of what is happening in this story and what's revealed in it in light of redemptive history. So with that, I want us to zoom out a bit. We're going to go back to what was promised to Jacob 20 years prior when he fled from Esau. And think about the clear instruction that Isaac gave uh, Jacob to Mary from his mother's side of the family. And if you remember, you recall the dream that Jacob had as he slept alone using a rock for a pillow and what the Lord had promised him. So look at Genesis chapter 28, starting with verse 13. Genesis 28 and verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give to you and to your offspring, to your offspring, excuse me, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave until I have done what I have promised you. That's our second movement now. A promise kept. So fast forward now, 20 years back to this point in the story where Jacob has to make a decision. Should I follow the one who I've been restored to, my brother Esau? He's offering companionship and leadership. We just read that in verse 12. Think about it. Here's a golden opportunity where Esau and his strengths and his flocks combined with Jacob and his skills and his flocks. And in today's terms, we could hear the conversation go something like Esau saying, come on, bro. Can you picture it? Isaac and sons, purveyors of the finest livestock. Let's do this. Let us journey on our way. But no doubt, no doubt the encounter that Jacob had with God the night before, being humbled, and now he's giving God all the credit to his success. All of that is reinforcing the promise made 20 years ago from God to Jacob to return him back to the land of Canaan. But here's something that we're going to see here in Jacob that even in his transformation and even with his name changed to Israel, there's still the old Jacob. There's still the old Jacob who's less than forthright and still deceptive. But maybe a little bit more subtle. Maybe. Take a look at this. Verse 13. But Jacob said to him. My Lord knows that the children are frail. And that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day. All the flocks will die. So the children. They were young. They were actually ages 13 to around 3 years old. They're not old. But keep in mind. Jacob had journeyed some 400 miles plus from Laban's land in Padan Aram. They had survived. So this at best was, let's call it an exaggeration. <laughs> but consider here in verse 14, let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, Jacob saying, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. And here again, the old Jacob comes through, letting his big brother down softly by saying, he'll eventually get to Seir, but just at my own pace. Now here in verse 15 or verse 16, it says that Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. We should take note that the only other mention of Esau from this point on is in his genealogy and when he returns to join Jacob to bury his father Isaac. That's all that Genesis records of Esau. The focus continues to be on the faithfulness of the covenant keeping God through the life of Jacob, now Israel. So look at Jacob's next move, verse 17. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. Now, some have said that this was, in fact, Jacob being honest with Esau. That Sukkoth was actually quite close to where Esau and Jacob had been reconciled. And in fact, the booths were just that. There were temporary shelters for the livestock to gain their strength because the area was ideal for grazing. But yet others conclude that Jacob outright deceived Esau and he didn't even go to the promised land of Canaan. Sukkoth, if you recall, if you look at a map, it's on this side of the Jordan. And so Jacob went on his own way for his own purposes and that's illustrating, as some have concluded, a half-hearted obedience. Now, even with indiscernible Intentions or mixed motives. Here's the point. What we read in these verses. Solidify a promise kept. Regardless of Jacob's actions. A promise kept. To God. And also a vow fulfilled. By Jacob. Taking into account. His actions. We see a promise kept. And now we see a vow fulfilled. And that's the third movement here. Now. Again, in this text, we see something about the promise of God as an act of his providence. Now, providence means his purpose actively being fulfilled by God himself. And it's consistent, of course, with his sovereignty. But it's also depicted here as an action on the part of Jacob, fulfilling his vow. I think this event here illustrate something important that number one, yes, God is sovereign. Absolutely. And yes, we humans are responsible for our choices to believe in God and also to not believe in God. Think about it. Now in case that may sound a little confusing, I want to clarify something. Here's what I am not saying. I'm not saying that we can choose to repent and to trust in Christ alone as our Savior on our own volition, apart from the Spirit of God regenerating us, and then we will be born again. No, that's not what I'm saying. It is God alone who predestines. It's God alone who calls. It's God alone who initiates. It's God alone who accomplishes. And it's God who finishes the work of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But, at the same time, we're every bit as responsible for our choices. Our choices to believe or our choice to reject God's gracious offer of salvation. So, it's not an either or. It's a both and. God is totally sovereign and we are able to exercise our free will. Uh Uh-oh, there goes that word, free will. We're able to exercise our free will only insofar as our nature allows us to do so. You remember, apart from the grace of God, we are by nature children of wrath. We are sinners. Now, D.A. Carson, some of you may recognize him. He's a biblical scholar He says this, quote, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. Human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth. And they are rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent or dependent on something outside Himself. In other words, while God does interact with us, and He does so graciously, intimately, mercifully, Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, And his intercession for us is supreme and sufficient evidence of that. But God doesn't react to our actions. God doesn't react as if what he does is dependent on what I do. In fact, our free will, which we do in fact have, that works within the realm of and subject to his sovereignty, it actually highlights the mystery of his good and perfect will. Because what God's word says will come to pass. What God says will come to pass. And so we focus again now here on Jacob, the vow made by Jacob. So one more rewind here in Genesis, back to chapter 28. Let's take a look at this in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 28. After God made his promise to Jacob... Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Then the Lord shall be my God. That's the vow made by Jacob. So back to our text in chapter 33, verse 18. And this is the writer of Genesis. He's giving us a conclusion to this part of the story in Jacob's life. Verse eighteen in Genesis chapter thirty-three. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent his tent, excuse me. In verse twenty. There he erected an altar and called it El Eloche, Israel. So we see here in verse 18 that Jacob does indeed arrive safely. And the Hebrew word is actually Shalem. Shalem sounds familiar, right? Many of you are going to recognize it as the word for Shalom or peace. But in this verse, the word actually does mean safely or unharmed in the physical sense. And it's just as God has promised. Think about the threat of retribution from his brother that he has sinned against. It's no longer there. Think about the mistreatment from Laban. 20 years worth. It's all gone. And moreover, look at this verse here. Jacob has exercised his faith in the promise of God in two ways. Take a look at this section. Like his father Abraham he bought land in Canaan. But most importantly, Jacob made an altar and made a vow to God and he fulfilled it to God Almighty, El Shaddai, as his God. And so we see Jacob fulfilling his vow. This goes back to the condescension of God when he had lowered himself to wrestle with Jacob. You guys remember the story from last week? I mentioned it earlier. No longer was he governed solely by his fleshly desires to deceive and gain the upper hand, but Jacob was now governed by God. And that's what the name means, Israel. Striving with God because he's now governed by God. And his new name is reflective of this new relationship. The God of his father Abraham and the God of Isaac was now his God. He built an altar to proclaim that reality. El Elohe Israel, God is now the God of Israel. Now, we read in this chapter 33, we looked at the grace of God at work in a prayer answered. We saw how Jacob was delivered from his brother and he was reconciled to him. We look and we found out about a promise kept, God bringing Jacob back to the land of Canaan. And now we see a vow fulfilled, Jacob now having the Lord as his God. Here's what I want to point out. The beauty of reconciliation and the return to the land were not the end of, to the plan and the purposes of God. It was in the immediate sense and his faithfulness came through. And reconciliation on a horizontal level, it's not the same as reconciliation with God in the vertical. It's not the same. And peace, peace in this temporal realm, it's not the same as peace with God. As important as these are and as much a blessing as these things are, they do not result in the ultimate reality of a true peace, a a shalom with God. The fact that Jacob, though he experiences these wonderful transforming uh, graces of God, he's still going to suffer from the choices that he makes and from the choices that his children make. The prayer that Jacob prayed the night before points to a prayer that was prayed in a garden 19 centuries after this. A garden in Gethsemane where Christ, whose very soul at that time was exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death. In that garden, Christ prayed three times for deliverance. Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Jesus, I want you to hear this church. Jesus was asking the father to remove the impending hostility of the father's righteous wrath. That's what he was asking for. He was asking the cup to be removed from the justice of God upon the sins committed by Jacob and by you and by me. And there was this conflict initiated by Adam and Eve at the beginning of time where their rebellion and sin to a holy and a good God was counteracted by a vow fulfilled and a promise kept. Not just to return to a geographical location, but to defeat sin and death and the devil. God had promised in Genesis chapter 3, he said, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, God had returned Jacob safely to the land of Canaan to fulfill his promise and his plan for salvation through the providence of God that he did, he does, in nurturing Israel through these many centuries, ultimately, to bring forth the seed. The offspring of the woman, where in the fullness of time, Jesus was born to fulfill the vow. As Jesus said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, a body you have prepared for me. In verse 7, he says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. as Jesus prayed for the cup to be removed from him, he fulfilled the vow by humbling himself in obedience. Humbling himself in obedience. After praying three times to have this cup of God's wrath removed, he said, yet not what I will, but what you will, Father. Hear this the reconciliation that we have with God, the Father, the peace that we experience was made through the body of Christ. The body of Christ as he hung on the cross in place of our sin, in place of our judgment. Second Corinthians 5.19 says that this in Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, But as Colossians 2.20 says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, he does so by making peace by the blood of his cross. Did you hear that? In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself by making peace by the blood of his cross. There was no other way That was always the plan. So what does that mean for us now? How then shall we live? That's the proper question to ask. As Jacob has seen the face of God and lived, and now has seen the face of his brother and he's reconciled with him, think about what this does. Through Christ, we are now his children and were reconciled to him so we could live in Corum Deo. That's a Latin and a fancy word that literally means before the face of God. And what that means through this restored and reconciled relationship in Christ, we are now in the presence of God. And we discover that the life that we now live in the flesh. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We live by faith. We have new desires that the gospel brings about the obedience of faith. Paul writes that in Romans. But, like Jacob, I know that there are some fears that we deal with as believers. Such is life. We don't go through life free of fear. It crops up from time to time, just like the old Jacob, right? But I know sometimes those fears drown out the voice of God. And that could be debilitating. I know. So it's worth asking out loud what those fears are. What do you fear? Who do you fear? Do you fear losing your reputation? Or do you fear losing your, quote, kingdom? And a commitment to God means that you have to give up your way of life and the sin that you take pleasure in. Are you afraid that God is disappointed with you? Are you afraid that he is angry every time you sin? Do you feel such unease that God will only love you when you're good? Sounds silly. I think we can reconcile in our mind and rationalize. No, but in our heart of hearts, that's what we feel. Remember our call to worship Psalm 85, 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people. He will speak peace to his people, to his saints, to his saints. Some more questions here as we ask out loud what our fears are. Do you fear exposure and thus shame for your sin? Do you fear not belonging? Do you fear not being accepted? You remember Jacob. He called Esau Lord, and he was humbled because Esau accepted him. Here's the good news even better than Jacob and Esau, Christ condescended himself. He reconciled us to God, and he made us accepted. He made us accepted, whereas we heard this morning when we open up service, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. God is not ashamed of us. Christ Jesus has made us his very own, and so we have this shalom. We have this true peace. We have this wholeness of a relationship that is restored We have life abundant in Christ. And this life will always remain because salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen? So brothers and sisters, as Paul encourages us in Romans chapter eight, he says, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but with him freely gave us gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Christ is our prayer answered. He's our promise kept and he's our vow fulfilled.